The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in the New European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the New European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, snowflakes. No, your ears do not deceive you. This is not Steve Anglesey. It's Matt Withers and Eleanor Longman-Rood. We're both journalists at The New European and have taken the reins of the podcast this week while Steve is unwell. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep doing it, then please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. On the podcast this week, we're joined by The New European's own Tim Walker to talk about his new play, Bloody Difficult Women. We discuss Boris Johnson's mini reshuffle and what, if anything, it means, and the protests against Keir Starmer and whether to expect more slurs in the run-up to the general election. With Jacob Rees-Mogg reshuffled into a new and quickly concocted position, we asked podcast listeners what job they would give to the newly appointed Brexit Opportunities Minister. And of course, we induct some more deserving entrants to the Hall of Shame. But first, our brilliant colleagues Suna Erdem and Klani Hanela have put together an exceptional piece of journalism. It's accompanied by a special three-part pop-up podcast series entitled The 27. Here's a trailer. On the night between November 23rd and November 24th, 33 people were trying to stay alive in the English Channel. 
They were in a tiny inflatable, too many of them, and it was deflating. They called for help over and over again, but nobody came to help them. By morning, they were dead. This was the worst tragedy of its kind, and it took place in one of the world's busiest shipping routes between two of the world's richest countries. In the days that followed, we learnt more about the people who died, men, women and a young child, but their stories were soon eclipsed. First, there was a political row over who was responsible for the deaths. Then the story faded away to be overtaken by government scandals and the coronavirus pandemic. The new European has spent a month retracing the journeys of some of those who perished. Where did they come from? Why did they leave? What drew them to Britain? And why did they have to die when the ships that could have saved their lives were so close? In this three-part series, we tell their stories because they deserve to be told. And we ask, what can be done to fix a system that's so inhumane? The whole series of The 27 is now available to stream or to download where you found this episode. And if you want to help us do more work like this, then you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. So, another quiet week in British politics. Where do we even start, Matt? Well, let's touch on um, a rather unsavoury episode uh, involving Keir Starmer this week. He and David Lammy were ambushed by uh, a group of protesters, including a member of a hardline anti-vaccine group, which ran military-style training sessions in preparations for a so-called war on the government, uh, an anti-lockdown rapper and a man arrested for raiding the VAC centre alongside Piers Corbyn. Um, so a deeply unpleasant group of people who ambushed Starmer and, and David Lammy. And some of the things were being said were pedo protector. Uh, and these, this has obviously come out of Boris Johnson's um, uh, claiming, the, well, repeating the lie that Keir Starmer failed to prosecute Jimmy Savile when he was director of public prosecutions, a lie which has been around the internet in far-right circles for a number of years now, which Boris Johnson picked out of his back pocket when he was uh, giving a particularly flailing performance in the House of Commons a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one Tory MP has been quoted by HuffPost as saying that they expected to see some more of this thing in the run-up to the next general election. Um, I think the effort is to equate Savile and Starmer somehow um, in people's minds um, and unfortunately, it seems that it is having the desired effect. Yeah, it was well, just a cheery note to start on, really, isn't it? But it, <laughs> it's all things like this always sit very uneasy with me. And I think they do on the whole with the public, whatever side of the political spectrum you're on. Um, it's just not a very nice thing. I know one of the a witness said one of the protesters carried or was carrying, sorry, a hangman's noose and joked that this was for Starmer, which that goes beyond, you know, japes at the opposition. That's just, you know, inciting violence, and it's just not very nice at all. Um, I don't know, in terms of the next election, are we going to see more slurs like this? I don't know. It reminds, I think there's a danger that things like this always get thrown around at whether we'll probably be in a time like that, out of sheer desperation, when the next electoral cycle rolls around. It reminds me of um, the Tory leadership, not the most recent one, but when Theresa May obviously by default somewhat got leadership and there was obviously the comments that Andrew Ledson made where not to the same extent that said that May would struggle to lead the country because she hadn't had children or some very bizarre comments like that. And 
So I think there's a danger they always come out. Um, I have to admit, I've been reading in response to a lot of this, a lot of Kim Ledbetter's comments where obviously um, she said she was deeply upset and angry about this and commented that words have have consequences and that politics isn't, no matter what we've seen over the news over the last few weeks, politics isn't a game. And it reminded me of the Joe Cox's foundation and what they've been trying to do over the, or what they tried to do a few years ago and get the parliamentary code of conduct um, to, you know, monitor parliamentary language. And I think it all just comes down to that, that there needs to be, you know, it's one thing making japes, but when they cross a certain line, it's important to have some sort of responsibility and accountability for what those people in positions of power say. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it just debases politics uh, as a whole. I, I never really bought into this um, Boris being a, so Boris Johnson, I should be fine for that, Johnson being a, <laughs> a kind of British Trump figure, because I've always thought it um, simplistic and, and misleading. But there is something of the Trump in this. You know, Trump often does the, uh, a lot of people say, a lot of people say, before saying something which literally nobody's ever said before. Um, but it just implants seeds in people's minds. And this is what Johnson has done here. Uh, and I don't think it was entirely off the cuff. Um, I, an FT journalist tweeted that he'd been warned by his team not to say this in the comments. So it's obviously something that, that he, he was toying with using and when he was particularly flailing pulled out um i just i do not think this is good for politics it, it it all leads in a very dark direction no i'd agree i'd also like to add that that was a very good trump impression i think <laughs> giving matt ford a run for his money there um <laughs> thank you very much um but no i did yeah that's interesting that whether there's a lot of debate around um boris johnson when he speaks like how much of these comments are off the cuff and how much is, is it dead cats is he trying to distract us is he trying to play up into this we see almost trumpian figure or clownish figure that oh you know i don't know what i'm doing blah blah look over here look over here meanwhile there's stuff being pushed through parliament etc and um yeah i don't i don't know how much in, into that rhetoric i buy um it may not have been his like you say it may not have been his first choice comment to come out of the out of the gate with but if it you don't that's a very rogue thing to come off off the cuff i think well let's have a look at the other i was going to say big story of the week it, it was a a reshuffle it was an extremely limited reshuffle or, or, or indeed a he shuffle as some in westminster are calling it as very few uh, women were involved I'm just got a, a few thoughts i jotted down on this and uh, we're going to come on to jacob reese mogg um he's he had a promotion in that he's now in the cabinet rather than just attending the cabinet but i don't think it's ever a good sign when a leader has to create a nebulous role with an unwieldy title to retain someone's loyalty which is what's happened here um we've got a new chief whip this is chris heaton harris um he's best known if, if, if indeed he's known at all was writing to all universities in 2017 asking them to declare what they were teaching their students about Brexit and to provide him with a list of lecturers' names. Uh, he then defended himself, saying it was information he needed for a book he was researching. Because it's five years on now, and we've yet to see any signs of that book. Um, at least he's got an excuse now. Um, Stuart Andrew, he becomes the 11th housing minister in 12 years. So it's, it makes, uh, makes quite clear why absolutely no progress has been made in that in that sector in the intervening period. 
I just think it's worth mentioning what hasn't really been picked up on. Uh, right down the bottom of the ministerial ladder, um, Boris Johnson now has four PPSs. Um, these are parliamentary private secretaries, so they're basically your eyes and ears on the back benches and in the tea room. Um, but two of these are worth noting because they are bonkers, even by the extreme Brexiteer standards. Uh, Leah Nicky, she claimed on Radio 5 Live last week that Keir Starmer's so-called links, in inverted commas, to Jimmy Savile was the number one issue for her great Grimsby constituents before Boris Johnson even brought it up. Um, and Joy Morrissey, uh, people may remember, was the MP who last year called for all homes and businesses in the UK to have to uh, display a portrait of the Queen. Um, meaning that uh, the singer Morrissey is uh, no longer the worst Morrissey, uh, incredibly. Uh, I don't know what, what caught your eye in the in the he shuffle. In the he shuffle, I have to admit, I'm a big fan of the he shuffle, as in that that coining it. That that's very amusing. I oh, I don't know. I think it's um, I think it's very clear that it's it is a mini shuffle. It's come from a place of weakness. I don't think it's a, a reshuffle that he, an ideal world wanted to suddenly have. Um, you know, and I think all the, his troubles started, it wasn't, didn't all begin with Partygate, it, you know, at the end of last year, we had the Owen Patterson and Tory Slees scandal. Um, there's been numerous cases of mishandling of, of the coronavirus pandemic, um, not to mention the more minor things of the somewhat troubling CBI Peppa Pig infused conference speech. Um, but no, so I think it's, it's, I think it's clear that he needs all the friends he can get from this reshuffle because I think like you touched on, it's interesting that no one particularly got sacked. They just had a, oh, as the name suggests, they had a bit of a reshuffle and how you can, it's interesting for British politics where you can sort of inadvertently get the sack, but also bizarrely get a promotion or a new position in, in the process. Um, and I think this thing of not wanting to upset anyone comes out of how can you at the moment, can Boris Johnson risk moving someone or putting you know putting someone's nose out of joint and not risking receive a letter of no confidence in the process and that's probably not a gamble he feels comfortable taking um on the subject of on the subject of he shuffles i have to admit and i would be remiss not to mention this that i am very glad and it's very important to look for silver linings that jacob reese mogg has not been although he's now Brexit Opportunities Minister or Oxymorons Minister, however you'd like to look at it, um, that he's not going to be Women's Health Minister after his comments in the Commons last week, uh, where uh, Dame Diana Johnson raised, said, uh, would he be willing to raise a debate on sexual and reproductive health? This was after a campaign from the Women's Parliamentary Labour Group and the British Pregnancy Advisory Service and also from the work of the journalist Rose Stokes. Um, and through this, they managed to get the price of the morning after pill reduced from $15.99 down to $10.99 in boots. Uh, and so she raised this issue and said, would he be willing to have a debate on the floor in it? And he's, his response was that he would not be willing to have a debate on something or a pill that induced abortion. Um, now, obviously, that's not true. Um, the morning after pill does not induce abortion. You just need to ask the WHO, the World Health Organization. So, yeah, anyway, my point is that if we like to look for silver linings these days, which I think is very important to do so, I'm just glad that Jacob Rees-Mogg um, 
and not for the first time, is not landed, has not landed the uh, position of women's health minister. And speaking of Jacob Rees-Mogg, we actually asked the podcast listeners what job they would like to see the newly appointed Brexit Opportunities Minister take on. Luke N said a permanent guest on the Ali G show, which would be very interesting. Jan Godfrey said Minister for the Nanny State. John McLeod said Media and Culture Secretary, which I think would be an interesting replacement for Nadine Dorries. I'm not entirely sure either of them are too familiar with the internet or how long it's been with us after her comments last weekend saying that the internet had been with us for 10 years been around a bit longer than that john t gifford said minister for insincere apologies eric knight said uh the attendant in nightclub toilets in fact a lot of our listeners actually echoed these these thoughts uh adeline kante said a toilet cleaner in a diarrhea clinic peter campen said a fatberg sewer removal worker uh, John gives him a bit of a promotion and says sewer manager, as he has plenty of experience. Judith Adler also gives him a promotion and says minister for toilet cleaning. Um, a lot of obsession with human effluence amongst the new European podcast listenership, uh, which, is, which is curious. Uh, the brilliantly named Simon Book Honor says minister for horizontal leaning. Dave Scott says minister for the 19th century, for which uh, Graham Stead replied, saying I was going to say the 18th century, but let's give the guy a break. And Colette Worley just replied with P45. But we wait and see if any other P45s are to be dished out or if Boris Johnson will continue to hang on by a thread. Joining us on the podcast now is a new European colleague whose play Bloody Difficult Women opens at London's Riverside Studios later this month. Welcome back to the podcast, our diarist and theatre critic, Tim Walker. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us, Tim. So where are you with the play right now? It's sort of two to three weeks before opening night. Where, what is the writer doing at this point? He's panicking. He's, he's handed his baby over to a very good director called Stephen Unwin. Uh, it's amazing how sort of paranoid and uh, neurotic uh, a playwright can become because obviously you're terrified about what is happening to it. I did pop in today briefly to see how they were getting on and they seem to be brilliant. Uh, what is odd about this play is that it was going to open last June and we had a reading in January last year. And, you know, <laughs> some of the actors saying to me, have you read anything in the papers about this, this thing in China, this sort of um, virus? And I said, oh, for God's sake, let's just focus on the play and get this done. And I'm, I'm not really that bothered. Of course, the virus did, unfortunately, take a hand in our, our production. And I mean, when I wrote it, I wrote it about three years, I think, before we, you know, we finally managed to get it on. I, you know, I was literally an angry young man of theatre. Now I feel like a sort of rather decrepit Zimmer frame using elderly playwright. And, you know, the young actresses in it, the, the young romantic male leads, I think we're all getting on a bit. So thank God we finally got it in, get it, got it on before we're all six feet under. Yeah. So as you said, an angry man writing about bloody difficult women. It sounds like a good combination, really. Now, I should say, whenever people ask me the name of the play, and I say bloody difficult women, and particularly when it's women who ask me, they all say, well, there's no need to be like that. But it is based on Ken Clark's famous off-mic comment about Theresa May, 
And she actually quite, you know, rejoiced in being called a bloody difficult woman. And I know Gina Miller, who's a bit of a mate of mine, she certainly likes being called a, a bloody difficult woman. I mean, Stephen said to me, uh, there was a point where we were trying to get it on, you know, uh, originally, you know, back in June. He said it was just after the kind of landslide Johnson victory. And he thought, oh, dear, I wonder if it'll work now. You know, we've, we're just resoundingly voted for Johnson. It is a play that's critical of him and what he stands for. And I stress the play, it's not really an attack on Brexit, it's more an attack on, I don't know, our whole society, our whole way of doing politics in this country. He, he felt at that point, it wasn't, you know, it felt like ancient history, whereas now, about to open at this point, uh, this month with Johnson and all the problems that he's got, it does feel relevant and our country does feel very ill and very sick. And I think the play does have a message. And indeed, the last scene is literally set in today. Uh, it's an imaginary scene where Mrs. May finally meets the woman who dared to sue her government, Gina Miller. And the two of them uh, basically talk about where we are now and, and how our politics was all about divide and rule. And people like Theresa May and Gina Miller, who I actually think are very similar in many, many respects, in, in any other circumstances, would have got a non-famous play. It's, it's a tragedy of division of our time, really, that, that the play is about. Tim, you mentioned um, COVID. Just to bring you back to a technical point, um, things are calming down a bit now, but it wasn't that long ago that, that, that two or three cases of COVID and productions were, were shutting down. Have you been able to get on with preparations in the way you'd like to? Well, I mean, we have been lucky. And, it, of course, we are a very uh, you know, small production in terms of money. We don't have very much money. And accordingly, we can't afford understudies. And what's uh, <laughs> the awful prospect that say, you know, one of the characters couldn't have gone on, was too ill. Uh, maybe I, or Denise, who is actually, you know, she was a former actress, Denise Silby, the producer, you know, could end up reading scripts. But thank goodness we are beyond that point. And of course, commercially, it makes much more sense now because the, the theatre can be filled to capacity. Uh, there's no money to be made in theatre with social distancing. So do you feel you feel comfortable with where when the play's opening later on this month? Do you feel in a comfortable position with with where all the preparations are now? I do in terms of COVID. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, I'm hardly his greatest fan, but he was talking about lifting all the restrictions completely, which will be beneficial to the play. I mean, I personally, as a theatre critic for you guys, I'm going to theatres. People feel confident uh, and I saw only this afternoon a, a theatre critic called Mark Shenton saying that in Hollywood, um, sorry, not in Hollywood, on Broadway, it, it's back up to pretty much pre-pandemic levels now. People are going back to theatres. And I think we need theatres, particularly after traumas of the kind we've been through with COVID. I think theatres, to some extent, are kind of secular temples where we all go and cheer ourselves up after, after difficult times. Yeah, I know I felt like that when I, I went to theatre uh, a couple of months ago and it's the first time I've been since the pandemic started and it felt it was a very nice experience to be able to have that again I have to admit um so the play's about obviously as you've said Gina Miller and Theresa May and the court case around article 50 you've written for us before about your admiration for Gina and I think you're less of admi an admirer of Theresa May um, and you've just touched on there briefly that you, in another world or another reality that they would have, they could have got on. I was just, could you touch on some of the similarities between them and where they differ and how they could have then in another lifetime got on? 
I think they're both what David Cameron would rather misogynistically called girly swats. They're both details people. Uh, they both, you know, like to get their nose into books and find out the detail. I think that's one similarity between them. And let's remember, too, that Theresa May said that when she heard the Brexit results, she burst into tears. She thought about, and that's actually a quote from her in real life. That's actually what, um, uh, you know, what she said. She was very much uh, pro-European. She, she, she campaigned for Remain in that election. Uh, I think they both have a great sense of duty. I think they're both patriotic. Uh, and it was interesting that they ended up, you know, on different sides of the fence, because as I say, they would otherwise have been mates. It's very difficult writing about a friend um, because you know them. And I think in a strange way, I've perhaps been harder on, on Gina Miller than I might otherwise have been, because I didn't want people to say, look, she's a mate of yours. So I've really gone to great lengths to get the humanity out of Theresa May as well. Um, and Stephen Unwin, the director, you know, it's not all that different from journalism or writing for a newspaper, writing a play. I mean, like a good old fashioned news editor, Stephen Unwin would just say to me, I think this is getting boring, Tim. And there were characters that kind of evolved in the play. And it took a long time for him to say, you know, I think this is actually working. He's never, like a good news editor, he'd never actually rewrite anything, but he'd just tell me, I think I'm a bit bored now. I mean, we had two characters who were civil servants, and initially they were just sort of Mr. and Mr. Exposition, and they would say something like, oh yes, Article 50. What, you mean the mechanism by which the UK will leave the EU? And it was all that kind of stuff going on, which was very tedious. And then I made one of the civil servants a Muslim woman, and of course they had arguments, but they were very predictable arguments between the civil servants. One was pro-Brexit and she was uh, obviously found it difficult to deal with Brexit in many ways, not least racism. And even that seemed a bit boring. So eventually they become two male civil servants, one of whom is completely straight, the other is a, is a rather predatory old gay who keeps sort of trying it on with him. But in a way, that's a kind of symbol to me anyway, a Brexit, you know, it was a kind of delusional uh, thing where everybody sort of had these fantasies of what was going to happen and none of them were really realised. It's ultimately, I think, a sad play. But to my great surprise, because I wrote it literally about 100 years ago when I was, when I was much younger, apart from the, the, the today scene, which has obviously had to be brought completely up to date, it, it made me laugh a great deal, which surprised me. And it, it it, it, it very much surprised me that I found it quite so funny, but I mean, there's a character in it, Paul Dacre is portrayed in it, and it's, you know, the great boogeyman of the left. I like to think I portrayed him as a, you know, as a human being, uh, but, you know, the language he uses, and he's very famous for the, his use of four-letter words and so on, makes <laughs> him a somewhat comedic family, figure, which wasn't what I had intended when I wrote it. Jim, it was quite a theatrical performance from Theresa May um, herself in the Commons last week, uh, quite quietly devastating attack on Boris Johnson. Uh, Ted Heath never really spoke about Thatcher with the same venom. He he used body language, didn't he? Um, I wonder what you think. Um, what you think May's role is going to be down the years? I was reading uh, a few days ago. She's actually enjoying very much being uh, a constituency MP because she only really did it for a year before she was moved onto the onto the front bench. How, how do you see things panning out for her over the next few years? I, I make a few points about Theresa May. One is that most prime ministers, when they step down, normally give up being an MP. You know, they give up their constituency. May chose not to, which I thought was interesting. The other thing about a, a prime minister stepping down, they normally write their autobiography. It's normally the first thing they do. It's an easy way to make a, a few hundred thousand pounds, perhaps. 
may again chose not to. Now, both these things make me think that there's a sense of unfinished business that May feels. And it has even been suggested to me, and I have been talking to an awful lot of her mates and, and former colleagues in cabinet and people like that, it's even been suggested to me that it's maybe not inconceivable that she might even think, and they may think it's ridiculous, but she may even think it's possible to come back. And as prime minister, I mean, we heard these stories about Tony Blair having this similar thought. I must say, if I was Theresa May and I had had the innings in, in number 10 that she had had, I would be feeling very aggrieved by it because she could never be the prime minister that she wanted to be. And I, I think if I was her, I'd want another crack at it because Brexit really paralysed her, her administration. And I remember the speech she made on the steps of Downing Street when she got that job. And the Guardian, the Mirror, papers like our own, everybody thought it was a very good speech. You know, it was about, you know, helping the just managing classes. It was about helping the oppressed in our society. And it's a tantalising question, what kind of prime minister would she have been if it weren't for Brexit, which essentially became, you know, a 24-7 job. And it was an impossible job for anyone to do. It was. She had some exceptionally difficult shoes to, um, to step into. You say... Theresa May could be returning or looking to return then to number 10. Is that, I haven't, I have to admit this morning, I haven't looked at the latest polls on runners and riders if if Boris Johnson leaves, if he's forced out. Is that something that could happen in the short term, do you think? I, I think it's a very interesting idea. And I think one of the things that Tory MPs are saying to me, why they don't want a leadership election, why Johnson will probably, at least for the foreseeable future, remain in number 10, is that there's no clear winner. Uh, people have talked about Rishi Sunak, but, you know, a lot of people in the party don't like the fact that she, he has allegedly been rather disloyal to Johnson, some of the things that he has said and, and done. And so if there were to be a leadership contest, it wouldn't be like the sort of contest that saw May get the job very quickly after uh, Michael Gove very conveniently backstabbed Johnson. And then Andrew Ledson made those hideous comments about May not having any children. So it, it would be a very long-winded fight, which I don't think the Tory party want. And I think, too, it's awfully convenient, really, just to let Johnson remain in office until after the local elections. And then, you know, he can be blamed for the local election disaster, which is going to happen anyway. And then anoint somebody after that. I mean, I don't think Johnson will survive the whole year, but I think he's... He, I, I'm also, by the way, saying this out of sheer laziness and probably wishful thinking. I don't want to have to rewrite the last scene in my play. Uh, so I'm quite keen that he actually stays on. Um, I might add, too, in the play, he's never mentioned, because every single play that Boris Johnson has ever appeared in, he's ruined it, because he turns everything in, in real life and indeed on the stage into a kind of circus. It, it, he becomes a clown and he, he ruins everything really dramatically, as he, as he does indeed, unfortunately, in real life. So he's alluded to, uh, the main character always says, I don't, I'm not mentioning his name, so his name is ever me never mentioned, but he's like the kind of shark in Jaws. You feel him all the time circling around in the water and, and you, you can see the danger. And, and I was thinking the other thing about that play, it's actually quite a Victorian play in a way because Gina Miller never wanted to go to court against the government. She never wanted the abuse and the death threats that the poor thing got. May certainly didn't want to become prime minister in those kind of circumstances. So both the women were victims of very powerful men. Uh, Cameron really made May's job impossible by the mess he'd left behind. 
And people like Gina and, and May were both sort of dominated behind the scenes by people like Paul Dacre, the Daily Mail editor at the time, people like Rupert Murdoch. Their, their fear was what made those sort of people quite powerful. And it, it, it's, as I say, it's ultimately a very sad play, but I do think it, it will also make people laugh. Uh, the thing about me, I've always managed to find humour in often the most tragic of circumstances. I think that's a very good skill to have at the moment, really. <laughs> it's helped me. <laughs> yes. And you just referred to Boris Johnson as the shark in, in George, sort of know he's lurking around. I, what went to my mind was Voldemort from Harry Potter, where you don't, don't dare say the name. Um, but if we now have, could possibly tempt some words on your, on your old colleague, Boris Johnson, we've, this week we've asked listeners of the podcast what their thoughts are on Jacob Rees-Mogg's uh, appointment to Brexit Opportunities Minister in the reshuffle and asked them what job they would have given him instead. And we had some rather colourful answers, to say the least. Uh, they've ranged from Culture Secretary, which is an interesting replacement for Nadine Doris, to a public glue attendant, which may even <laughs> keep him keep him busier than Brexit Opportunities Minister, whichever way you look at it. Um, what what are your thoughts on the recent reshuffle and all these replacements? I mean, I think it's, again, very sad. I mean, by necessity, to get into Johnson's cabinet, you had to be pretty ignorant, uh, pretty insensitive and pretty unpleasant, uh, because you had to go along with, with his fantasy. I thought it was very interesting, the, the piece that, uh, in very vain here, Mandrake ran about Guido Howie saying to Matt Kelly, uh, our brilliant founder, a great man, not that I'm a creep in any way at all, but saying to, Guito saying to, to Matt that Johnson very much regretted uh, that he sent over, because he did the two pieces, one was saying how wonderful it would be if we remained in the EU, and the other was saying how we should get out. He very much regretted sending over the piece saying, you know, that we should we should get out because it's made his life very difficult. And it's also made the opposition's life very difficult. I mean, Keir Starmer, and I used to go to events that he held in, in the early days uh, of 2016, where he'd be campaigning passionately for us to remain in the EU and talk with great passion about it. And the trouble is, if you begin with one little lie, and it's not even a little lie, that Brexit can somehow be made to work and it will be a great success, it's essentially building a castle on the sand. And I think that's a problem with Labour policy. It's also the, the problem with all the people in Johnson's cabinet because they're not, you know, where do they go from this point? You know, they're blaming everybody for what's going wrong, but it's, it's the policy, the problem. It, it cannot be made to work. Jim, you've um, spent some time getting inside the heads of, of Gina Miller and Theresa May. I mean, you're many things, a, a fine journalist, a playwright, you're not a, a psychoanalyst, but I just wondered what is going on in Boris Johnson's head? What is he feeling at the moment? Is it self-doubt? Is it fear? Is it just entitlement? I mean, I think and books have been written about Johnson. I've written myself. We all have long sort of articles about him. I think if you really want to find out about Boris Johnson, you go back to that famous row that they had in the flat that the, the then Carrie Simmons, his future wife, had with him. And among other things, she shouted at him, get off me, get off me. Uh, she shouted, you have no care. And I'm going from memory, but this, this was the effect of her words. You have no care about money or anything. And I think that's the key to Johnson. He, he really doesn't care about anything. His, his father, Stanley, set really a terrible example to him as a father in the way he conducted himself, the allegations that have been made about him in terms of how he behaved in that marriage and with other women. 
And then you've got this Johnson, the old Etonian, everything going pretty easily for him in his life. He then ends up at the Telegraph. And I think the first time I met him was at a, a, a book launch. I think um, one of our, our, our great distinguished former, well, now late journalists, um, Bill Deeds, had written a book. And Johnson sort of rolled up literally the moment our then owner, Conrad Black, later, of course, headed off to prison. But anyway, he arrived the same time as him. And I was very struck by how Johnson hung around basically every single time I saw him after that moment and at that moment around very rich elderly men. And of course, the Barclay brothers then took over and he managed to sort of inveigle his way into their affections very quickly. And indeed, as I write in the paper uh, this week, uh, people would often say to Johnson, you know, your, your, your copy is late, it's rubbish, the, the sub-editors have to go through it and correct everything. It's, it's not a very high quality column that you're giving us. It's not even very well written because you'd often do it at the last minute. And sometimes the production of the paper would even have to be held up waiting for this you know, rather pointless column. And Johnson would always say, and as I also say in the paper, one editor I know was, was actively trying to get rid of him. But Johnson's reply to them would always be, look, I know the proprietors, you know, you, you can get stuffed. And if you have that kind of a life where you're getting £270,000 a year for essentially doing nothing but being difficult, it makes you very arrogant. And I think his problem now is he can't turn around to the public or to us and say, uh, you know, I'm friends with the Barclay brothers, I'm the proprietors, you know, I, I get on well with the proprietors, get stuffed. He can't say that. So this is a, a problem really with a man who's been spoiled all his life. And and as you say, you've written about in um, the latest edition of the New European issue number 279 in your Mandrake column, his sort of his trump card for hanging on to the, the column and the job at the Telegraph as saying he knows the paper's owners and his editors did not or his other colleagues did not. Obviously, you've worked there. Boris Johnson has worked there. Would Is there ever a world in which he returns, say, um, if he loses the job as prime minister? We're talking about replacements this week. Is that is that a potential lineup for Boris Johnson? I mean, I worked at the Telegraph for 12 years, and so clearly I still have very good friends there. Um, most of them, by the way, share my views on just about everything, but they also have mortgages and so forth. And so they, you know, they write what they're told to write. Um, the thing about Johnson, he was very close to Sir David Barclay, and he died not so long ago. And I got to know him very well because Ed Victor, the literary agent, wanted me to write uh, his you know, autobiography at one point, you know, dosed his autobiography. And so we got to know each other very well. And he said to me, and I vividly remember him saying this, I think I may even have it on tape on a WhatsApp message, but he actually said to me, you know, Boris is always pleading poverty all the time, so we have to keep putting his, his, his salary up. And I thought that was interesting because he wasn't sort of talking about him as a journalist, as a great writer that another newspaper would poach, which is a normal re reason to pay somebody a vast amount of money, but basically because they saw him as a charity case, or at least David Barclay did. Frederick Barclay, by contrast, uh, the surviving uh, twin who, who still lives, never was quite so fond of him. And there was a point, actually, when I was talking to the guy who did, I never actually met, to my knowledge, Frederick Barclay, but I, I was talking to the guy who did his PR, and at one point I did ask him for a potential Mandrake uh, item or, or lead. Does Frederick actually like Boris Johnson? Does he still, does he believe that Brexit's going well? And it was interesting, there wasn't really a reply. 
And I think that's probably consistent with the way that the Telegraph is now turning on Johnson. So one paper that keeps banging on now about a leadership election, uh, big front page pieces saying, you know, do you think he should remain as prime minister? You know, he shouldn't. So I think things have turned on that. I think David's death, David Barclay's death was very bad for Johnson. And I think he... I think when it, it's literally now only the Daily Mail that seems to be pitching for him and people are ridiculing the Daily Mail's sort of slavish devotion to this man, I think it's a, it's a very dangerous situation for Johnson. I definitely don't see him coming back to the Telegraph, certainly not on £270,000 a year. I think the only point of paying him that money for doing nothing was on the basis that he would one day be Prime Minister and potentially be of some help to the Barclay brothers. But he's a busted flush now. Nobody wants him. He's toxic. I mean, he would be, be commercial suicide to put his face and his, his byline in, the, in any newspaper now. Well, I yeah, think if know? there was ever something to end on, <laughs> would, would be that. <laughs> I mean, he was a ghastly man. Nobody liked him on the paper. And as I say, you know, somebody's on £270,000 on a paper where we were continually making redundancies. You know, it wasn't really, as far as I was concerned, the newsroom money well spent. Tim, before we let you go, it would be remiss of us for you not to get a chance to tell people uh, when and where they can see your play. Well, it's very sweet of you to say that, and I shall take that now with great greater plum it's the 24th of march it opens at the riverside studios which is a really nice theater overlooking the thames it's in hammersmith very short walk from hammersmith too and it goes on till pretty much the end of march so it's well it's it's well i think it's well worth a visit i'd certainly be interested in what european our new european readers think about it and indeed what you both think about it and as a theatre critic, having dished it out for years and years to other people, I'd like people to tell me in no uncertain terms whether they like it or dislike it. I think it's good myself. I would myself give it five stars, but I would, of course, be somewhat biased as a theatre critic. Ever so slightly somewhat biased, but just slightly. <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks so much, Tim. Thank you. Thank you again. Brilliant as ever to have Tim Walker on the podcast there. You can read more from Tim's Mandrake column and his theatre reviews in issue 279 of The New European, which is in shops today. Before the Hall of Shame, a reminder of something that isn't shameful. In fact, it's rather brilliant. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives podcast tells the life story of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. It's a superb listen. Two seasons are available now and can be found wherever you got this podcast. And now time for the Hall of Shame. First up is Mark Spencer. The MP for Sherwood was moved, as we've discussed, from Chief Whip to New Commons leader in Boris Johnson's mini cabinet reshuffle this week. And he made comments to BBC Radio Nottingham saying that people in the real world don't care about the Partygate controversies that continue to unfold. He said that people were more worried about energy costs, the NHS backlog, and the economy. And I think he's right to say that people are worried about energy costs, the NHS backlog and the economy. But this is an ease by the fact that when Downing Street was supposed to be searching for solutions to these issues, they were instead searching for their next bottle of wine. And joining him in the Hall of Shame is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, who represents Georgia's 14th district. On Real America with Dan Ball, she expressed her dislike for Nancy Pelosi's gazpacho police. Just to clear things up there, gazpacho is a vegetable-based Spanish cold soup, and Gestapo is Nazi Germany's secret police. 
In that rather distasteful comparison, I'm assuming she meant the latter. I think Gary Lineker summed this best up when he tweeted that stupidity is a dish best served cold. I have to say, I, I missed that story about gazpacho. Absolutely remarkable. First person I'm inducting into the Hall of Shame is Gito Harry, Boris Johnson's new head of communications and a man apparently on a mission to beat Anthony Scaramucci as serving the shortest period in office in that particular role. Harry bafflingly uses first day in the job to give an interview to the Welsh language website where he admitted saying Prime Minister Gito Harry reporting for duty like some golf club bore that Boris Johnson suggested he should take the knee for the former GB news host and then the pair sang Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive Together. The worst thing I've ever done on the first day in a job is accidentally set the fire alarm off. And joining him is Natalie Elphick. Conservative MP for Dover and hardline Brexiteer, who rose at Prime Minister's questions this week to say that Dover was, quote, once again beset by miles of traffic jams along the motorways, as you'd see from the New Europeans cover a few weeks ago, uh, continued, quote, affecting residents and local businesses alike, not because of Brexit, but because of Brussels bureaucracy and red tape. She asked, how can we get rid of the unnecessary red tape for a trading global Britain if only somebody anybody could have warned Natalie that these miles of traffic jams might have been a consequence of leaving the customs union and single market into the hall of shame for her. Well, that was a new European podcast. Thanks for listening. If you don't want to miss an episode, please subscribe and give us nice reviews and lovely ratings. Please do listen to our new podcast, The 27. It's available in this podcast channel. And also, as mentioned, don't forget Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, another one available where you found this. If you like what we do and you want to help us keep doing it, please join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. And you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. So, retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Roquefort became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the City of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.